I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome back to This Week in Church History. This is week 10 of the year 2020. There's some interesting topics to talk about this time, and uh, I'm pretty excited about both of them. One is the 40 Martyrs of Sebasta, a, a famous martyr story that Mike McMullen and I are going to be talking through uh, as we talk about that. Uh, they they died uh, on ice in March 9 of 320. We also want to talk about uh, August Franck, who uh, was born on March 12, 1663, a famous uh, pietist and a pietist leader that, quite honestly, I'm not sure evangelicalism would be where it is today if it were not for the pietistic movement. So we'll get a chance to talk about both of those this week in church history. But let's start with those martyrs of Sebast and their story. Mike, you and I were talking earlier about uh, these martyrs and how in some respects, this, this story is actually contested somewhat but it is definitely one that uh, is venerated a lot in Eastern Orthodoxy. So these, let me give us the context and uh, the story of what's going on uh, in territory pretty much in, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Licinius was still the emperor in this particular portion. The, the empire hadn't been unified underneath Constantine yet. Um, we have the story of their martyrdom given by uh, Basil of Caesarea um, as, as he delivered a homily on their feast day. Um, but that's still 50 or 60 years after their death. Keep that in mind. But according to uh, Basil, 40 soldiers had openly confessed themselves as Christians, and uh, they had done so to the prefect who then it forced them to uh, remove all their clothes, uh, exposed them and put them on a frozen pond in the middle of a really cold night with the intent that they're just going to freeze to death. Among those who are uh, who are there are these um, these they're they're pretty much young men. And so what soldiers do is they set up just outside of the pond and create nice, warm baths. And they tell the people who, these 40 men who are out on the ice and say, hey, if you um, if you will renounce Christianity, you can come and enjoy a nice warm bath and we'll let you kind of back into our society, into our uh, fellowship uh, as soldiers. This could be a really good thing. So uh, that was the temptation that was there. They were hoping that one of them would give. And as this is going on, uh, one of the the men does leave. He breaks ranks and he leaves the ice and he leaves his companions and he came uh, right to one of the, the warm baths. But according to the story, the moment he got into the bath, it killed him. Um, either, I don't know, they were hypothermic or mm. whatever, but uh, this is this is what happened. In seeing this, one of the guards who was watching over them, uh, seeing that this, this young man had died, he is overcome with the testimony of the men who were on the ice, the um, what he considered a, a 
kind of a, a death by judgment uh, in the hot water, and he confesses Christ as well, removes his clothing, and joins the others uh, out on the ice. So the number of 40 remained complete. The uh, They stayed on the ice overnight, and as the uh, night went on, they succumbed to hypothermia. So at daybreak, the uh, their frozen bodies were pulled off of the, the frozen lake, and they were burned and their ashes cast into uh, a river. So supposedly, too, Christians gathered their remains uh, and used them as relics, which was a common um, practice in those days for martyrs. And uh, those, uh, those remains were then placed in several different churches. I actually became a uh, aware of this story uh, when I lived in in Israel, and there is a chapel for these forty martyrs uh, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and it's set aside, and it's it supposedly has uh, um, some of the remains of the men who who died there. So, Mike, as we think through this uh, this story, this is again one of those fantastic uh, stories and accounts of those who. Uh, were willing to die for their faith, but it it's located in some of its places in in what we might call acta literature, or literature referring to um, those who are uh, being martyred for their faith. And sometimes that proves problematic uh, when we start trying to reconstruct this historically. Why is that? Part of the problem is a number of these accounts were um, written a number of years after the events had taken place, and um, sometimes even beyond the living memory of people who were there at the event or, or knew at the event at their time. Um, it, it's, the account speaks to me of the fact that um, in America, what is the most that we are going to suffer for Christ at the present time may be uh, reputation, or maybe made fun of, or even maybe marginalized, something like this. But certainly, n- nothing of what these people went through in, in the early days of the church. And and we're here because uh, of the suffering that such people went through. And and these are examples to us of staying faithful, of being there uh, because Christ keeps us, not not in our own strength. It speaks to me, too, of the fact that Christians across the world are suffering like this for the Mm -hmm. faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not that it's something that ended with the early church, but Christians are facing horrific things, China and elsewhere. So we're one body. We pray for them. We think of them. We do what we can to help. And we identify with them in their suffering, just as uh, previous Christians suffered. Um, and, and we remember them. Uh, we're one body together. Uh, right. And so as we think through like this particular story, we the, the first kind of introduction that we uh, as historians have in talking about the literature, really is this homily uh, from from Basil, where where he takes the story and, and and expresses it more fully. But that's a good 50, 60 years after the yes. actual event was supposed to have happened. So while uh, this is not inconsistent with something that would have happened during Licinius's reign, uh, sometimes those stories 
do get embellished a little bit uh, over time. Is this one of those cases where you think, as we we kind of look at it, that that might have happened? The, the probability is that this example, this was given as an exhortation to sit, stay strong in the face of, um, you know, pretty severe persecution. And uh, there is an example of what the church suffered and people went through. Uh, not necessarily that this was an historical example, um, but we just don't know for certain. One of the things that in our conversation with Rex Butler uh, last week that he had talked about with Perpetua and Felicitas um, was, especially with Perpetua, her very clear identification that her identity was 100% found in Christ. Yes. That's how she chose to identify herself. One of the things in the ACTA literature when you read the the broader corpus of these martyr tales um, has is this reputation, uh, not reputation, the repetition, sorry, of this uh, this identity with Christ alone, uh, the the jettisoning of any level of self identity and submitting that to Christ, and and saying very clearly, I am a Christian, and that's all I am. And in several of the acta um, recorded acta literature, when the proconsul or the ruling party had had asked someone, well, what is your name, and they would simply respond and say, I am I am Christian. And that obviously infuriated the uh, ruling parties even more. But this identification with Christ is such a uh, a key key component and a key part. It's one of the things I find compelling about this story is even as they're proclaiming Christ, that those who are on the outside are observing this and it's moving even to them. So these soldiers who are watching uh, and the one that even joins with them in the suffering uh, itself losing his life as well. Yeah, how can the world ever understand or appreciate the fact that men and women and young people uh, are ready to give their lives for something uh, that is so alien, so foreign, so um, n- not understandable unless you know something of Christ, his right. beauty, his grace, his mercy. So these uh, these men, as they uh, as they die, this is this is one of the reasons why uh, this we might even call it cult of the martyrs grew up mm. in the early churches. These were people who were willing to go all the way to their death to so identify with Jesus Christ that it, it meant that there was nothing that was going to hold them back, uh, including uh, their very lives, and and willing to do that. So these. 40 martyrs uh, as they came uh, and on this lake, their day that they are remembered uh, as being martyred and freezing to death for refusal to um, deny Christ happens uh, this week on March 9, 320. But shifting gears, I want us to move to talk about pietism. If we see uh, the Christian life expressed uh, in its fullest, perhaps in the testimony of the life of a martyr. Um, August Franck was another, uh, August Hermann Franck was another one who really put forward what it meant to live for Christ, but the emphasis on live for Christ as part of the uh, pietistic movement. He was uh, born uh, in 1663 
and uh, he dies in 1727 in uh, in the town of Halle in Germany. And uh, he was, for lack of a better word, just a man who lived and understood and uh, pressed into uh, the the truly lived out Christian life. How do you see this pietistic movement, uh, especially as it relates to uh, Franck and all the things that he's doing? Franck is is uh, to me uh, amazingly interesting. He um, preaches in churches even before he is saved. He uh, recognizes that many of the the ministers in the Lutheran Church in Germany uh, are clearly not born again. And as a 24-year-old, he uh, is asked to preach. He, he realizes he's not saved. He, uh, after a while, he comes to Christ and uh, really believes that the heart living out for Christ is, is what the Christian faith really is, not an intellectual ascent to orthodoxy. And, and this new view of what the Christian faith is uh, becomes the basis for uh, an incredible movement with others uh, across Germany. It will influence Europe, then North America. Um, it, it really was the start of, of God uh, at work in a major way. Uh, well, and this is partly uh, the the joy of how God often will, will work within our lives, is that he will connect us with someone else to encourage us. And, and he and Spainer together became a major force uh, in the University of Halle, which is not too far away from Wittenberg, and kind of an entire region uh, of Germany to move it past a uh, kind of an arid scholasticism that had um, had, had developed after the Thirty-Year War in mm-hmm. Germany, the cynicism that had crept in um, to really press people towards a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. What were some of the changes uh, that he was able to to bring about, kind of in 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 culture? Because that's, I think, where we see most of uh, his his legacy even played out more. Yeah, he sets up a school, he sets up an orphanage, he establishes a, a hospital, a place for the poor, for widows, and uh, many of the the men who come through his school will become. Uh, missionaries themselves, they will impact society around them. Uh, without Franck, you don't have Zinzendorf, so right. you don't have the Moravians, you don't have John Wesley, you don't have the impact in North America, the First Great Awakening, uh, the Evangelical Revival in Britain. You, you would have had dead orthodoxy right. without a, a, a living relationship with Christ. You would have uh, pulpits filled by men who really didn't know the Savior preaching something that really wasn't the gospel. One of the uh, the slippery definitions that we wrestle with uh, in the modern day is that term evangelical. Uh, it's hard to define, and people have tried to put different definitions uh, on it. But as we even look at where does this evangelical movement start, some people place it right here in Germany. They place it right here with Franck and Spainer and all of the things and work that they're going to do. I believe it was uh, Marzen at a conference I was with who quipped, 
Um, somebody asked, well, what really is an evangelical? And he basically said, if you find an orphanage, uh, yes. you're, you're doing something right. You've, yes. you've got something there that's coming together. And this is precisely what uh, uh, Franca and Spainer are doing. They're taking their theology and they're bringing practical uh, areas to bear on this based on what the scripture teaches. Yeah, this is theology in action. This is the gospel. And um, the, the impact that um, Franck and, and others will have on society hasn't ended. Um, evangelical influence is, is still active very much in the 21st century, both in Britain and America, though, of course, it, it's waning to some degree, too. Yeah. And in, in Halle, as they're doing this, I mean, Franck was teaching Greek. Uh, that was what he was best known for. He was a biblical scholar. But he's he's trying to uh, get this to work with uh, again following the Thirty Year War. There's uh, destabilization in many communities, and so how do we train children, and and how do we help them uh, be able to be successful for later? So it wasn't just at the university. Um, he 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 also taught in the sciences and and things that were known uh, at that time. And as a polymath, he even taught some of the, uh, the, the trades, uh, that were necessary. <laughs> yeah. He establishes a library. Yep. Um, it has like 20,000 volumes. He establishes a printing house. He's printing Bibles. Uh, he recognizes that, uh, for the church to make a real impact, then people have to return to the Bible. It yep. has that they, they have to be, um, steeped in scripture, in devotional literature, there has to be a, a personal uh, prayer life, there has to be study of scripture together, uh, a congregation of those who are seeking the same things. Uh, and it's amazing what God does through individuals like him. Who are just willing to live according to scripture. Yes. Shocking. Oh. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that God would want to do uh, what he set out to, uh, that he already told us that he wanted us to do. It's perfect. Well, if you want to read more about uh, either one of the uh, things that we talked about this week, you can find uh, information about both of those and pretty much any general church history uh, that would uh, outlay or, or cover um, some of those things. There's plenty of uh, literature as well uh, on Franck and the, uh, the work at Halle. And the especially the work with orphanages and some of the social reforms that are there, you can find plenty of those uh, books. And isn't that part of the tragedy that he doesn't receive the recognition really that he deserves, and yet that's probably exactly what he would want. That it is exactly what he'd want. One of the things that I love having my my students read in church history too is uh, Spainer, his his colleague, his Pia Desideria, which started uh, as a introduction to uh, a, a grouping of sermons that were being published. And it, it just started as a, a way of saying, hey, this needs to be uh, the way that we, do, that we should live life. Uh, Pia Desideria simply means pious longings or pious desires. So this is how Christians should live. Mm. And it's, it's pretty much part and parcel with exactly what Franck does. And uh, it, it just explicates this. It's a very short little work that's easily uh, picked up anywhere. Um, and very, very readable and indicative of the, the type of work that the pietists did uh, and what they, they understood. Well, uh, Mike, as we draw our time to, to a close here, any final thoughts that you have? This is only 
just over a century after the Reformation. And yet so quickly, people have gone back to something that's outside of Scripture. Um, the Christian life is what we do. And, and Frank and others are there as correctives to get us back to Scripture again, to Christ living in and through us, mm. um, doing the gospel, being his people. That is such an important point, uh, and in other episodes, I'm sure we'll talk about where we get to Zinzendorf and the Moravians and the uh, First and Second Awakenings in America, the Great Awakening in Britain, these other places yeah. that, that, that flow directly from people saying it is not enough to have an ossified religion. Yeah. The Word of God demands so much more from us. Yeah. Well, thank you, listener, for joining us for this week in church history. We look forward to uh, joining with you next week as we explore more of the people, events, and movements that impacted the history of the church. We will see you next week.